You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I don't know if we did that yet, did we? You know, didn't have our awkward social interaction time and things like that. Um, thanks, guys, for coming down from Hot Springs to sing, and they're going to come back and do one more song when I'm all done preaching, so you're all anxious for me to get done preaching, I can tell. Um, Man, Brian was just so giddy about having a a quartet, kept saying barbershop quartet, I think he expected you in the pinstripe shirts and the garters and all that, and he's not even here, and uh, he was super, super excited about that. Uh, anyway, Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we're going to be today, and I encourage you to get a Bible. You are going to need a Bible this morning. Uh, and open it up to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. It's just before the book of Psalms, so if you find Psalms, just flip back a couple times. Brian's been going through the background of uh, where Nehemiah sits, uh, and uh, it's a story about a guy that's building a wall or leading a group of people, building a wall. And what happened in the last chapter? They built a wall. It's done. Obviously, the book of Nehemiah is about more than building a wall. (laughs) Because there's still several... I mean, we're right in the middle of the book when the wall gets done, and there's something going on yet. It's definitely a story that uh, I, I think is showing us renewal out of the ruins. And that is something that is very relevant for for us today. It's a story about much more than a wall. As I just said, it's about God's people returning to the passion um, that God has for this world. Uh, A passion for this world and know his name. Just as we were reminded in that video of what's happening in Vietnam. Uh, I think we miss that sometimes. I think we, we don't understand that that's really what God is all about. It's about making his name known to every nation, every people on this entire globe. He wants to bring his redemption, his salvation, his mercy, his grace to, to all peoples. And I think when we read the, the Bible, you know, we see the story of creation. And I'm not going to run through the whole thing with the hand motions or I'm going to look like I'm having a seizure up here. But uh, <laughs> it, it starts with creation, you know, and that's all of mankind. And if you, if you know anything about the story of the Bible, it starts off pretty broad like this of all humanity. And then it begins to narrow down to the patriarchs and then to one nation, Israel. And then all of a sudden it gets real tight, sort of like that neck of an hourglass. And we have the story of Jesus. Because all of mankind is funneling down to who in the world is Jesus Christ and why does he step into our lives. And then the rest of the story begins to broaden back out again to the church, to the book of Revelation, where we see that great encompassing salvation brought up all across this this globe. That has been God's heart from the beginning. And Israel lost it. And I'm not saying, oh, Israel, bad Israel. (laughs) Israel is just a representation of all mankind. And it's so easy for us, it's easy for us today as the church to lose that sense of God's passion for all the world. That's why Nehemiah is such a relevant book for us to to read today. Now, to help us to understand, uh, Israel pretty much forsook the Lord, uh, forsook the covenant that that he had made with their father Abraham, Uh, had forsaken his passion to be a nation to reach all of the nations. And and when they did that, judgment came upon them. Judgment always begins in the house of God. 
And they were sent into exile. They were sent into Babylon for 70 years. They were ruined before they ever went into exile. They were ruined spiritually because they turned away from God. Well, while they were in exile, um, God had provided a prophet by the name of Jeremiah to prepare them for this time that was going to come, but also to prepare them for what was going to happen afterwards. So to set up Nehemiah chapter 8, I want to read to you out of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant, and they shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind, the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping, they shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who has scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Let's pray. Lord, what a, what a piece of good news Jeremiah was delivering there to a people who were at that time ruined. They, they had strayed from you. They have each gone after their own way. And, and Lord, that is, that is our human tendency. That is us. And yet, Lord, you did not cast them out into utter ruin and you did not forsake them utterly and completely, but you even gave them a promise to, to restore them, to return them. And how many times in that passage, Lord, did that word again rise up again? Lord, help us to remember today as we go through Nehemiah that that for our lives, maybe some of us have wandered away from you. Maybe some of us have never even looked your direction. Maybe some of us have run hard away from you as, as fast and as for as long as we can. 
Lord, maybe some of us are weak and stumbling, and maybe some of us have made decisions that, that we think, well, how could God ever use me again after that? There could be some of us here today that are looking at the ruin and rubble of our own lives. Lord, today help us to hear that word again. May there be an again for us today. So speak to us through your word out of Nehemiah 8 today. Um, Lord, I can't do it. Um, so speak and let our hearts hear and let our ears listen and let our, be, our feet and our hands be ready to respond. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, okay, Nehemiah chapter 8. This is really hard to preach an entire chapter in, in three hours. So, <laughs> so sit down and buckle up. <laughs> but, but basically, here's the, here's the book and part of the chapter in three parts. Uh, the, the overall title is Watered uh, to a Parched Soul. Um, and, and the three parts of this chapter are part one, uh, returning to the book, and we'll see that in verses one through eight. Part two is God's joy, our strength, uh, and that's in verses nine through twelve. And part three, we're going to see that camping is a holy pursuit. Okay? And I dress for it today, except for the flip flops. I don't usually wear flip flops unless I got to get out of the tent to go, you know. <laughs> but camping is a good thing, and we're going to see how it is ordained. Even in Scripture, as we look at Nehemiah chapter chapter eight here. Now, um, I'm going to try something here. I hope this works out. But today we're going to practice a model of hermeneutics or Bible study. All right. There's three steps that anybody can do. You don't have to go to seminary to do this. Anybody can pick up the Bible and read it because there are so many versions that are written in a language that we can understand and in a vernacular within that language that we're able to understand as well. And here's what you're what we're all supposed to do when we read the Bible. First, we're supposed to observe. Okay? Look carefully at the text and what it's saying. And while you're looking carefully at the text and what it's saying, you need to ask yourself questions like who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who is this passage about? What is this text telling me? How did these things come about that I'm seeing in there? You're not supposed to try to answer those questions at that step, and that's typically what we do do. We read the Bible and we start to answer questions before we even looked at the clues. So imagine when you go to the Bible that you're some kind of crime scene investigator. Okay? And, and, and there's a crime scene here. That's a weird thing to compare the Bible to, but it's a crime scene. Well, it is, because it's our sin and our rebellion against God. That was quite a crime. And what we're looking at is, well, what happened? What are the clues that are left behind? And then you've got to get all Sherlock Holmesy and start, you know, lodging all these clues into your mind. Don't try to answer them yet. Just start writing your notes and go, what are all these things that are going on in this text? And ask questions. Just tear it apart. And you'll guess what? You'll never run out of questions, no matter how many times you read a text. Second step is interpreting. This is usually the first thing we do, and that's a mistake. We read it and we go, well, what does it mean? <laughs> but we haven't looked at the clues to try to help us to understand what it means. And here's the trick. There's only one correct interpretation. And as human beings, guess what we're going to do? Get it wrong. And that's why we've got to keep coming back to the scripture and go, did I get that right? Did I interpret that correctly? Um, did I understand what this means? There's only one way that this thing can mean what it means because it's truth. 
And then once we've taken that step, we go into the application step. Well, I should say we should go into the application step, but again, it's kind of our habit to say, okay, well, I looked at the verse and I observed every detail that I could in it, and then I figured out what it meant, and then I moved on to the next next chapter. No, that's not the point of Scripture. The Scripture is to get us to know what to do. So that's when we start thinking, well, there's one correct interpretation, but there's many, many ways that I can live it out and I can put it into practice in my life. Again, another reason why we have to return to that stream and get water for our souls. So let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 8, part 1, returning to the book. Interesting that that's what this is all about here. Now let's read the first uh, eight verses. And while we do, observe. Okay, that's why you need to have a Bible. Listen carefully or look at your own text. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Not not the water gate that a lot of us older people understand. That's, that's one of the many gates in the walls of Jerusalem, okay, where water came through. What's that? Not a hotel, not, not a conspiracy, not a, not a scandal. Yeah, okay. Uh, so they came to the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read, uh, he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and behind him, or beside him, stood, oh boy, Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah, and, and on his right hand, and uh, Padeah, uh, Mishiel, uh, Malchiah, Hashum, uh, Hash Potatoes, Hash Browns, uh, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it. As he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands as they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, a bunch of guys and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay? What did you observe? It was a bunch of dudes. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of people there. Okay, so who were the people? That's, remember these questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Who were the people that were there? Did you get some of the who's? Who were there? Who was there? Ezra, okay. <laughs> Ezra the priestly scribe was there, and, and, and he read. We're not going to talk about him, we're just going to list these things, okay? Who else? A bunch of guys whose names I didn't want to try to pronounce there. Not saying they're not important, we probably should go back and look them up in a Bible dictionary and learn some things about those guys, but they're there. Who else was there? All the people. All the people. Who were all the people that were there? How was that listed in there? The Levites. The Levites were there. Men and women were there. Children. Children were there. Those who had the capacity to understand. 
Okay, so we're getting a good list of clues here that we that we have here. Um, how did they gather? Do you remember that? They gathered at the gate, water gate, at the square. They gathered as as one man. That's an important clue in there. They gathered as one man. The sense of unity that's there. Um, why did they gather? To hear the law. They actually asked to hear the law. And how long did they sit and listen to the law? Early morning to midday. That's a marathon reading. Could you imagine? Did you know that they have studied the current attention span of the typical millennial? And it is less than that of a goldfish. And I'm not just picking on millennials. That's all of us. I mean, I can't focus on anything for hardly any time at all. And I, I read this and I'm they What? That's a long time. You know, what does it mean when a pastor looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. We got to try to get this done before eleven thirty. They they did it all day long, almost. Okay, so not going to talk too much more about that. We just see that that's what they did. Um, Any other things that you might have noticed about uh, this particular section? They built a platform. They built a platform. That's where pulpits come from, apparently. That's what I'm thinking. First pulpit in the Bible, right there. And Ezra stood up there. So that tells us something, and maybe we should see if there's some significance to that. They elevated God's Word. And also notice that the people were attentive to God's Word. Even though it was a marathon reading, they paid attention. And, And I also notice they took steps to teach and to explain God's Word to everybody that was there. So that's just the observation phase. And you know what? You could go back to this and keep going and keep digging and find even more than we just found in that, that very brief time. Um, their response to the teaching, it's worth noticing that. They, they were in agreement. They said, Amen, Amen. Everything, you know, Ezra was probably getting pretty wound up because people were going, Amen, you know, whenever he was explaining what was going on there. Um, we see that they were humble in their approach. We see that they understood what, what they were reading. Well, that takes us to the next step. Well, well, what does this mean? Okay, and here's where we have to get our tools out. And, and your first tool is always scripture. You find its context. What was happening in the chapter before? What's going to happen in the chapter after? What's been happening throughout the whole book? What's been happening in the Bible? That's why Brian leads us through that hand motion thing of creation and nations and everything, all the way to this story of Nehemiah, so that we understand the context and we get an idea of where it's going. This is when we get done exhausting the Scripture, then we might get out a, a Bible dictionary and look up some words that we don't understand or names that we're not familiar with. Uh, and Alice gets helpful. Anything that's going to help us to decipher these clues. Well, I think a couple of things that I think is significant in here that we often miss is this. The man Ezra, the priestly scribe who read the law to them. Did you know that he's already been at work for 14 years? For 14 years, he's been prepping the people for Nehemiah to come and say, you know what, guys, we need to build a wall. Because do you remember in the earlier chapters who built the wall? Goldsmiths and perfumers and priests and nobles. Not professional masons. Not people that knew something about wall building. 
And Nehemiah shows up and says, you know what, this wall looks horrible, let's fix it. And they were immediate in their response to work together and get it done. Why were they so quick to respond? Because Ezra had been teaching them from God's word for 14 years. I wish Brian were here to hear that. (laughs) Take heart, Pastor. Sometimes it takes 14 years (laughs) before it finally kind of sinks in. That's just the way it is. But now we see them, and and in this response, because of his preliminary work with them, we see this incredible attitude that they have towards the Scripture. And, And the Scripture at that time was the Law of Moses. That would have been the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, do you want to oh, Leviticus. No wonder it took all day. But they still paid attention. What in the world happened in the hearts of these people that they could listen to most of Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy and go, oh, give us more. That's only the work of God that could have done that. That's only the work of His restoration that, is, that has done that. Now, the other thing that's interesting is where they chose to gather. The water gate was down on the tippy end of the, uh, of, of the wall. And there was a square there. We don't know exactly where it was located, but we got a pretty good idea about the water gate. It's believed that this gate was near the springs of Gion. A singular stream uh, would fill many mikviots, which are the, it's the Jewish word for small pools that they had in that area. So there's a stream, that's, this is where their water source coming into the city, and they had all these little cleansing pools that was part of their ritual, part of their, part of their, uh, their uh, practice in worshiping God. It was where the households would come to get clean water and, and things like that. And there was an open square for them to, to gather here. Now there's lots of open squares in Jerusalem. I'm wondering, is... Is there a reason they chose this place? I don't know. We'll have to see. The spring that fed into there, get this, was called the Fountain of the Virgin. Now, I don't know if that's speaking to the purity of the water, and that's why they named it that, or is this somehow prophetic? Because the rest of the story tells us a story about a virgin, and from that virgin came the Savior for all the nations of the world. Which is interesting, too, because this spring flowed through the Gihon Valley, which was called the Valley of Grace. You think God's setting us up, maybe, here in the book of Nehemiah? This spring also fed the Pool of Siloam. And if you ever read John chapter 9, you know that's the story where, where Jesus meets a blind man. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. He makes mud, puts it on his eye, which is weird and strange and awkward. And then he says, now I want you to go to the pool of of Siloam, and I want you to wash that out. And guess what happened when he went to that pool there at the water gate? He washed his eyes, and he could see again. A man, Or I shouldn't say again, for the first time, a man born blind was given sight out of the valley of grace from the fountain of the virgin. It's also interesting that this location links to the Kidron Valley, which is where Jesus crossed the Kidron Brook to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. Hmm. What does that mean? So that's the question we should be asking. Every time we read Scripture and these things start coming out as we start digging, as we start learning things, what does that mean? 
then that leads us to this. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I usually go back to questions at this point. What am I supposed to do, do with this? And, and one of the things is, do I have a primary focus on Scripture? And these people, they gathered as a body, as, as one man. Do we as a church have a primary focus on Scripture? Is that what we're all about? Or does the Bible come in secondhand somewhere? Or is it back burnered while we do other things? I think that's a question we have to ask to know how do we apply this? Is it our desire to hear God's Word? Are we hungry? Are we thirsty for the Word of God? Let me read a verse out of Jeremiah, or not read a verse, but summarize a chapter in Jeremiah. When things were really going south and all wonky in, in Israel, there was this king, and he was not a good king. His name was King Jehoiakim. And God said, Jeremiah, I want you to write my words down and put it on a scroll and then have your secretary deliver them and read them to Jehoiakim. And so Baruch, his secretary, did exactly that. He wrote God's word down on a scroll. He went to the king and all of his wise men, his advisors there, and and they read God's word straight from the horse's mouth to this king of Israel. To, to repent and to get back on track and to be the nation to reach and take the blessing to all the other nations. And you know what King Jehoiakim did with the scroll? Burnt it. That tells you a lot about the attitude of the people just before the exile we unleashed. Seventy years later, we have a king who burnt the scroll to a group of people that says, we want to hear God's word. See, God is never done with us. He is never done with us. Regardless of our attitudes towards Him and His Word, He is not done with us. He can bring us to the point where we say, you know what, God? We can't do this without You. Is it our desire to hear God's Word? Do we strive for all ages to hear God's Word? That's why I'm so excited. I forgot to announce that we have the kids' packets back there so that they can get involved. And it's not too late to grab that, I guess. We, we should have said that, but we forgot. But that we made a decision as a body here to keep the kids in church with us. Okay, Unless they've got a really bad case of the hiccups. No, that's okay. <laughs> Did you hear that? That's the best sound in the world, baby hiccups. I just I was loving that the whole time, you know. But we you know, it's, it's, we want all ages and we want them to understand. That's why when they're done working on their packet, <coughs> excuse me, they come up to one of us adults and they say, This is what I learned and this is what I did, and we sign off and say, Very good, nice job on that, because we want everybody with the capacity to understand to understand. God's word is available to everybody. Do we pay attention? Or are we easily distracted? You know, goldfish head here. Does the Bible stir our hearts? Now that's where we begin application. Right there. Does the Bible stir our hearts? Okay. That takes us to part two, where we see God's joy, our strength. Verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy. To the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. That's such a great statement there. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to everyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy. 
to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay, what do we see there? Okay, we're, we're going to be here over time. <laughs> it's going to be your fault if we don't get out of here on time. What do you see in that, that passage? Well, the people are sad because of their sin. They okay, yeah, they read the law and they're like, holy cow, we are off the mark. It's no wonder we ended up in Babylon for 70 years. You know, it was convicting. God's word was convicting them, and they wept because of it. They were, that's part of their response. <clears throat> what else do we see? Levites calmed the people. Okay, Levites said, hey, settle down. Calm down here a little bit. Okay, what else? They were told to rejoice. They were told to rejoice. They had lunch. Have lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Potluck. Yeah, and they said, "Get the good food out." You know, and this is like Thanksgiving. It's a celebration. Oh, this day is holy. That's where we get the word holiday from. Holy day. So they said, "Have a holiday now." You know, here's all the people they've been listening to God's word for a long time, and they're just like cut to the heart, and they start crying. And they said, no, no, let's not do that. Let's rejoice instead. Let us rejoice. Who told them to rejoice? Priests. Priests? A couple names specifically? Ezra. Ezra. And Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Uh, hmm, does that mean something? Well, let's find out. Uh, okay, just a few observations here. Uh, the people responded because they understood what was being read to them. Now, what does it mean? Well, the weeping, I think, is demonstrating the transformation that has occurred in this people. And we see something here that God's word always has a twofold effect. It should, if our hearts are open to it. There should be two things that happen. One is repentance. Godly sorrow over our brokenness. Because God's word isn't just a self-help manual here. It's just saying, hey, this is who God is, and this is this is what he's like. And it doesn't take long for us to read that and go, and that's not me. That is not me. What's that? Oh, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, the water gate's down there on the tip there. So, um, All right, so God's word, it says in uh, Hebrews 4.12, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's uh, it's able to even it pierces the heart and it's able even to slice the spirit and the soul. I, I mean, I don't even know how to do that with definitions, but God's word is able to cut that deep into us. That's the spirit at work in His word, which He breathed out, convicting the heart. And yes, that is painful. It is painful when we face convictions. But God doesn't want to just inflict pain upon us. He wants that conviction to lead to true joy. And that joy comes out of repentance. You see, now repentance isn't this ongoing, oh, woe is me. You know, I'm so horrible and stuff like that. No, repentance is this often repeated cycle of, yep, I missed the mark, but I know that God has forgiven me through the blood of Jesus Christ and His Spirit now lives within me to help me to grow, 
That's the process of sanctification. It's sloppy, it's messy, it goes all sideways. But that's what God's doing in our work right now. And we need His Word in order for that to happen in our hearts. It leads to joyful transformation, and that's always a good change. And I don't know about you, but I need joyful transformation. Every day. Every day. And that does not happen apart from God's Word cutting my heart. Poking me real hard sometimes. And and it gets annoying. (laughs) And sometimes I'm stubborn and God has to poke hard. And several times. But that's why we keep going back to the Scriptures. I want to read a few verses to you. This is straight from Jesus, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If God's Word leads you to grief, Jesus says it's okay. You will be comforted. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. See, God doesn't want us to live in our regrets. He wants us to be set free from our regrets. Whereas worldly grief only produces death. And in Psalm 35 it says, His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You see, anybody that tells you that God is just some kind of cosmic killjoy that just wants to make us feel bad all the time does not understand who God is. God, just because of who He is, convicts us because of who we are. But God, because of who He is and His grace and His mercy and His love, says, let me help you up. And let's walk together and find joy. So now, what do we do with all this? Well, you know, again, the questions, does God's Word produce repentance in me? Am I reading it and going, what needs to change in me? Or am I, am I okay with the status quo? You just can't be okay and read God's Word. You can't accept the status quo and think I can just read God's Word and everything's going to be hunky-dory. How about this? Do we take advantage of holy days? Holidays? Do we understand that it was God who instituted the Sabbath and said, would you just take a break? It's against our human nature. One of the things that's wrong with us in the American culture, and it's only one of the things, there's a lot of things wrong with us in our culture, but one of them is we have the work-rest balance completely out of whack. And most of us are right here today in church still whacked out because we're busy, 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 busy. And God says, just stop! He had to command the Israelites to observe the Sabbath because they've been slaves for 400 years. That's all they knew was work. And they didn't observe the Sabbath. And the Sabbath wasn't just one day where they all gathered to worship. The Sabbath was their holy days as well. These holidays that God had set up for them to just stop and eat some good food and drink some wine and share it with your neighbors and rejoice. Truth is, most of us have been going an awful long time leaning into life. And that's an offense to God. Because He wants us to know His joy. And He wants us to know rest. So we have to celebrate. That's a good application. Celebrate. Did you know that, that, that most of these holidays that God was set up was basically a, a memorial to who God was and it was meant for people to rejoice in that? <coughs> yeah, you meet so many Christians, you know. They look like they've been baptized in pickle juice. <laughs> 
Well, I've asked Jesus into my heart. Well, you should ask Him into your face. (laughs) No wonder nobody wants to know about Jesus when they look at a bunch of sourpusses all the time. It's so, you know, that's one of the things that I like about Common Ground. And as we were talking about starting a new service in September, we wanted to make sure we shared the, the same, I don't know, non-negotiables. And, and one of them, Brian, came up with the phrase, you remember this, Jake, uh, joy-filled. And I don't know about you, but when I hear joy-filled, that sounds a little wonky sometimes because you can interpret that a lot of ways. But I, I think I like to look at it this way, is that we pursue joy. We pursue joy. We laugh while we're in church. We love each other by picking on each other once in a while. That's what family does. When you have a son-in-law like mine, it's just like so easy. <laughs> That's like I'm looking at it. Here it comes. <laughs> but you see, did you just hear that sound? It's all that's worship. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. You know, I'm, I'm really upset about all the pictures of Jesus that we've painted over the years. Number one, we make him look like a Viking. Okay, Nordic Jesus and his L'Oreal locks. Are they, oh, he's a Middle Eastern Jew, and he's probably about that tall. Okay, just a regular looking guy. And we never really talk about Jesus smiling or laughing or things like that. There's, there's a great reference in Luke chapter 10. It says that he sent his disciples out and said and he went out into the cities and they came back rejoicing because they saw God's spirit at work and him building his kingdom. And as they told this to Jesus, it, said, it says right there in the scripture, Luke 10, and he rejoiced greatly in his heart. That's not cool. I mean, how do you rejoice greatly in your heart without a belly laugh coming out? I'm thinking in that moment, there was God just having the time of His life because He saw His disciples excited about His kingdom. That's who Jesus is. And we're reminded of that as early as Nehemiah says, okay, yeah, we know the word hurts, but stop, repent, and rejoice in what God is doing. We just read it at the opening of this sermon out of, out of uh, uh, Jeremiah 31 about what God was going to do to restore His people to a nation of gladness so that all the nations would see and know who God was. Jeremiah 33, 9 says, This city shall be to me a name of joy. That's why they went to restore Jerusalem. It was meant to be a name of joy. A praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. Did you hear that? All the nations will hear of all the good that God is doing for them. And that all the nations would fear and tremble that they would revere God because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. You see, when, when people see our joy, they, they, they somehow see God. And they know He's at work. And they begin to get hungry for that work as well. I think we just need to slow down. You know, the Levites said, calm down. Calm down. I think we, I think we need a body of pastors and preachers and teachers that are saying to the body of Christ, hey, just slow down. We don't need another program. We don't need another one of the, they might be good things, but we just don't need to be filling up our schedules with so much that we're just useless running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Just slow. Sometimes wonder if when Jesus said, peace be still, 
that he wasn't talking to the winds and the waves, but he was actually talking to us. I think the final application we see in this portion is if you understand what God's Word is saying, you better do it. And, and they responded. They said, well, you guys just read all this to us, and they, okay, we're going to do it. And they went to it. That takes us to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18, last part. On the second day, did you observe that? It's the next day. It's just helping you out a little bit there. Uh, on the second day, the heads of fathers... Uh, father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. Had to emphasize that word, booths. I'm going to just say tents, because that's what it means. They should dwell in temporary shelters, tents during the feast of the seventh month. Remember, this is the seventh month they're in. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make tents, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made tents for themselves, each on his roof, and in the courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim, And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made tents and lived in the tents for more or for from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, and that's Joshua, the son of Nun. To that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, they read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Okay. Real quick, what did we observe in that? Tents. Tents. (laughs) They went camping. Okay, they camped out. They camped out on the roofs. They camped in the squares. They even camped in the open area around the temple that they had just rebuilt uh, prior to building the wall. Okay, what else? For a whole week. For a whole week. Yeah. When when the Levites say calm down, they mean go camping for a week. Okay. Anything else? They studied more of the law. They, they started studying again. They that they've heard it read. Now they're saying we want more. So we now we want to study. Do you know something else about the people? Who it was? Smaller group. Heads of the households. Heads of the households now are, are studying. Why do you suppose that is? We're going into interpretation when I ask that, but what does that indicate? Top down. Top down. Trickle it down. Everybody get involved in this. It's not just the Levites. It's not just Ezra who can teach. It's not just Brian who can teach. We all can engage God's Word and we can take it to other people. And in this context, it was take it to your family. Dads, teach your children what the Bible says. Husbands, sit down with your wives. Talk about what you're reading in God's Word. You know, it's, it's, it's given to us right there. That, that's part of what we're supposed to do. Teach older, teach the younger. You know, don't just wait for them to figure it out. Come alongside them and say, here, here, this is what I understand. And I want to share it with you. Okay, I went into application because I'm running out of time here, so I'm running through this pretty quick. Um, so a smaller crowd came, and they came on the second day. They wanted to study further. Uh, while they were studying, they discovered the teaching on the Feast of Tents. 
Okay, I always say Feast of Tents because I once was talking about the Feast of Booths and somebody thought I said booze. <laughs> they went out and they made booze for themselves. <laughs> wow, when God says celebrate, he means celebrate. No, <laughs> They're to build little tabernacles. Okay, that was the idea. Build little tabernacles, little tents. And the reason for that, again, was as a memorial to what God had done in bringing them out of the prom- or out of Egypt and slavery and into the promised land. They set up a tabernacle, which was like a temporary moving temple that as they went along, they could, they could stop and they could worship and God's name could dwell right there in the midst of Israel. And they all camped in tents around them. Well, now they're in a the city. Now they have a temple. Now they have all these things. And God says, you really need to remember Remember what happened there. You need to remember how powerful I am to save. So let's do something that will help you to remember how powerful I am to save. And they went camping. They went camping in their own city. Do you notice something else in there that's pretty telling? They had not observed the Feast of Tents since the days of Joshua. 800 years Israel neglected to follow God's word. They just got too busy. 800 years. Isn't that amazing? So what a phenomenal thing that's happening here. We see God restoring not just a city with its walls and its temple, but restoring a people, and most importantly, restoring them back to His heart through His Word. And so it says they observed it, and they did it with great rejoicing. And during that time, what were they doing while they were camping? Digging into God's Word even more. So what do we do with all this? I guess this is the big idea right here. Every time we open God's Word, every time we open the Bible, it should be as living water to a parched and thirsty soul because we are engaging Jesus. Okay? If, if people don't understand what they're reading and say, well, I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it, uh, then they're not going to be able to apply the Word. We have to understand that the, the end of biblical teaching isn't merely just to make a whole bunch of observations and share with one another the good points that we found and, and then try to impress one another with our stellar interpretation that we have of that text and then move on to the next one. The end of reading God's Word, whether we do it individually or do it together, and we should be doing both, the end is for people to live out their faith by doing what God's Word says. Because that's how His name is made known to this world. And that is how His glory reaches to every nation on this planet. If reading the Bible seems dry and fruitless, then I think we have to examine our motives when we open it. Are we reading the Bible because we're looking for some good thing for me? It's not what it's designed for. We read the Bible so that God can reveal Himself to me. And then He doesn't show me a good thing for me, but He shows me the thing that brings glory to His name. 
Is our motivation when we read the Bible self-motivated? Or is it God-motivated? Once, once it becomes God-motivated, you, you can't help but read the Scripture and have it well, slap you in the face, poke you in the eye, kick you in the rear end. <laughs> but that's God going to work. The Bible's not just another self-help manual. It's God's revelation of Himself that should wreck our status quo. There it is. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself that should wreck our status quo. Do not be deceived. On our own, our status quo is ruin and rubble. But with God, anything is possible and amazing things happen. One final thing to note, the Watergate. Not the scandal, not the hotel, not part of our American history, but that gate set in the walls of Jerusalem near the fountain of the Virgin and the Valley of Grace. Jesus is our water gate. In John 4.10, Jesus said to a woman, If you knew the gift of God, and he who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Revelation 21.6 And he said, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of water of life without payment. What is that saying? That's salvation. Jesus is saving us every day with living water. And He says, and you can't pay for it. He says, I did on the cross. I paid for that well so that you could drink freely. And then get this, John 7.38, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7.38 Guess what was happening when Jesus said that? The Feast of Tents. Jesus went to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tents. And more than likely, he was at the water gate when he uttered those words. Because we know just a couple chapters later, he sent a blind man to go wash the mud he'd made and packed into his eyes at the pools of Siloam. And guess what was going on when the blind man received his sight? The Feast of Tents. Jesus isn't only our water gate, he's our tabernacle. Mm -hmm. The tabernacle was set up so that people would know how to approach a holy God. Jesus is now our way to approach a holy God. To come to Him broken in our sin, to stand in His presence with no covering, no shelter other than Jesus. He is our tent that covers us. And, as we're told in John chapter 1, He is the Word. The Word made flesh. And just as that Word came to the people, as Ezra read it, and all those other guys with the hard names helped Him out, people responded. Jesus is not somebody that we can have a ho-hum attitudes toward. We either utterly hate Him or we utterly love Him. And there's no in-between. Because He came to us as the Word to reveal God to us. And whether we like that revelation or not, 
one day or another, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus is God, the Word in human flesh. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is our prayer um, out of the Scripture, because I think it's good to learn how to read Scripture and turn it into a prayer. So based on just this little bit, and that's easy to go back and find so much more, but based on this little bit that we did today, Lord, this is our prayer. Return us to a love for your word. Give us a hunger and a thirst for the Bible. Help us to respond to the scriptures in reverence. Help us to elevate it. Help us to understand it so that we might live in in accordance to it. Father, stop us in our tracks and make us pursue joy. Because that's where we know the power of Christ. Lord, help us to be a people that are full of joy. I'm not saying that we're fake and we're, we're putting on a plastic smile or something, but, but, but that's something that we hunger for. That's something that we desire. And then when we're going through the really bad days, the days where life really turns sour on us, that, that what we do to get us through those days is to know that joy is coming in the morning. Help us, Lord, to wait for joy. And Lord, help us to help us to dwell in Jesus as our tent, as our shelter. Help us to run into Him and find the rest, um, to find the calm that we so desperately need to experience. And Lord, as we do those things, I don't know how you're going to do it, but would you take this strange bag of mixed nuts that are gathered here, all of us? And would you somehow make your name known to the nations? And would you present your glory to people that have not seen it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Gentlemen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.